What a glorious hope that every Christian has, and it's a hope that we find in Psalm 2 this evening. So if you would turn with me to to Psalm 2. Last night, or last week, I was speaking to Eddie and Lauren, David Hickson, and David had come home on leave from the Naval Academy because his grandmother was being placed in hospice, and they were thinking the time was short, but when his grandmother found out that his grand, her grandchildren were coming home, she turned the corner. And now, as Eddie told me this morning, they're not moving her into hospice, they're moving her into rehab. It's quite remarkable. You see, promises are powerful. The promise of her grandson's coming home. And depending on what is promised and, and the one who is making it, a promise can be the fuel needed to spark hope in an otherwise apparently hopeless situation. And in Psalm 2, we see such a promise. A promise that comes in the context of warring nation states. You think that's relevant for us today? It gives the people of God hope no matter the rumblings of earthly governments. And to do so, it begins with a question. In verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now, the psalmist here in Acts 4 tells us the psalmist is David. So this is David writing. And David is asking this question not so much to, to get an explanation, but in order to make an exclamation. That's what he's after. Now, in Psalm 1, which is connected to Psalm 2, you can't read one without the other, really. It's the introduction to the Psalms, the table of the contents, a table of contents to the Psalms, if you will. You see in verse 1 that the righteous man, or verse 2, meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Now, why do I bring that out? Because here in verse 1, um, this word plot is the same word for meditate in chapter 1, Psalm 1. And so the righteous meditate on the law of the Lord. The same Hebrew word is found right here in verse 1, and the people's plot in vain. Now, that is intentional. But what are they plotting? What are they meditating on? Well, whether they are aware of this or not, they want to overthrow God's authority. Uh, they want to overthrow the authority of his king. And, and so while the righteous are busy meditating on the law of God and the word of God, the minds of natural men are abuzz with vain plotting, vain meditations. You see, whatever you meditate on will go public. It always goes public. Look at social media sometimes. Now, in verses 2 to 3, um, after the setup in verse 1, we hear the enemies of God speak. And they tell us why they rage. And so verses 2 to 3, 
we see the enemies of the Lord speak. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his, in Hebrew, that's Messiah, against his anointed. In Greek, it's his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, in Hosea 11, that speaks about God's law, which is good for, for his image bearers. Yet they do not desire the law of God. They want to burst them apart. And so these are the powers of history, but also those who conspire against a common enemy. Whether they're aware that they are conspiring against a common enemy or not. And who is that common enemy? It is Yahweh and his Messiah. In other words, long before the Lord Jesus Christ even came, David here, the psalmist, is describing circumstances that would run throughout history. For all of human history, these are the circumstances. And this is aimed at the Lord and his Messiah. Now, originally, this was David and all the sons of David who would follow him that would sit on Israel's throne. We know that because the promise, the Davidic covenant made to David and his sons. But ultimately, uh, this points us to Jesus the greater son. And we know this because it is picked up in chapter uh, 4 of Acts and applied to Jesus. Now, in that context, Peter and John have been arrested. They have been threatened uh, for preaching the gospel. And they, they were told they would be put to death if they continued to preach the gospel. Um, but they were released, and the moment they were released and informed the church of what had happened, it says that the church prayed. And they quote this psalm. Listen to Acts chapter 4. Um, they had not been praying long before Psalm 2 is quoted in their prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, uh, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so David is saying here at the very beginning of the Psalter, at the very beginning of the Psalms, and again, Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the table of contents for the Psalms. He says, everything you're going to read in the Psalms, everything you read in the Psalter, Behind all those plots that you read about, all the conspiracies, all the struggles that the people of God find themselves in, there's a global conspiracy against the Lord and against his anointed. He's giving us lenses on how to view human history. Now that brings us to the Lord's words in verses four to six. And so we've seen the enemies of the Lord speak, and now Yahweh speaks in verses four to six. His response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. 
I heard one preacher say, when God laughs, there ain't nothing funny. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, what's interesting here is that in verses 2 to 3, we see agitation. We see rage and plotting, bursting of bonds and casting away cords. These are violent verbs. That's the fruit of plotting on something that is not the law of God, the word of God. Okay? So they've been meditating and that's the fruit of it. But here in verse 4, we don't see that. We see serenity. You know, it's interesting. When I'm in a plane... And, and I got to be in one tomorrow. And I don't like flying, but I do it. I, I, I do it by faith. And, and so when I get in that turbulence, you know what I do? I look at the, the airline uh, stewardesses. I, I, I look at the attendants. And if they're smiling, I'm smiling. All right? I'm fine. And, and so here, it looks like chaos is breaking out. And the Lord is laughing. That He's laughing. That, that should be comforting for us. No conspiracies, no plotting, no scheming. He's not threatened by any rebellion. He's enthroned. He sits above all conspiracies. And he does and, and all desires for personal autonomy. And in his laughter, he holds them in derision. It's a good word for us. Look in verses 5 to 6. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. By the way, this is why Christians don't have to take revenge on people that's harmed them or hurt them. God sits enthroned. He, he's the one that's in charge of that, not us. And we see this here. Uh, the chaos that we see in the world... It's kind of like, have you ever seen ants energetically working uh, to, to, to build this ant heap, uh, this, this ant hill? Um, and, and that's essentially what all of these people who are conspiring are doing before the unstoppable power of the bulldozer of God's purposes come to bear. And the Lord's anointed here has been enthroned. He is sitting on Zion, his holy hill. Of course, that in the uh, original context would have been, would have been David. Uh, and it would have been all his sons to follow. But we know as we read Samuel and we read Kings and we read Chronicles, none of these kings were good enough to remain enthroned. But the one in whom they point sits enthroned and there's nothing that can dethrone him. That's not to say there has not been those who tried. You know, in church history, um, persecution began around 64 AD. And, and there were pockets of, of persecution uh, from around 64 to 200 AD. But it only became empire-wide starting in 200 AD. By the time you get to 303 A.D., to be a Christian is the most dangerous thing on the planet. Uh, Diocletian was the emperor. He's the most evil emperor Rome ever had. He hated Christians. In fact, uh, from 303 to around 312 A.D., it's called in history the Great Persecution. 
And, and Diocletian um, issued a, a, a series of four edicts designed to crush Christianity. That was his goal. That was his platform uh, as the emperor. And, and he extended his empire uh, westward towards Spain. And there in Spain, he built two monuments. And here's the words on one of those monuments. Diocletian, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians. And then the second monument read, Diocletian, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. All the while, Christianity was growing stronger and stronger and eventually triumphed over Caesar's throne. William Plummer, uh, who was a theologian in the late 19th century, went to Princeton, one of Princeton's most prized graduates, a scholar, a theologian, a pastor, a writer, a historian. He says, get this, of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one was slain by his own son, one became blind, one was drowned, one was strangled, one died in miserable captivity, one died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide, a third attempted it, but had to call for help to finish the word. Five were assassinated by their own people. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths, several of them having an untold complication of diseases. Eight were killed in battle or after being taken, uh, taken prisoners. Among these were Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven defying the Son of God, whom he called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it in the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. That's Roman history. The Lord and his anointed had the final word. But it's also world history. We need to remember that when we turn on the news and we fret over what's going on in the world. This is world history. And so it will be until the end. Indeed, that brings us to the words of the anointed one himself. So we've seen the, the wicked speak, and we've seen Yahweh the Lord speak, and now the anointed one speaks in verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, so this is Yahweh speaking to the anointed one. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Or maybe your translation reads inheritance. And the ends of the earth your possession. And so this decree tells us that this is something that not just not going to might happen, it, it, it's decreed, it's going to happen. 
And the today is the day of the son's coronation. So the son of God here, this is not referring to the fact that he became the son of God upon uh, his, his incarnation. Uh, he's eternally the son of God, eternally begotten of the father. But he was coronated as the son of God in the sense that he is the son of David. This is the Davidic king. And I know that because Paul applies it that way in Acts 13 when he says, today I've begotten you, that is the day that Jesus was raised from the, de- from the dead. And, and as the royal son, the Lord invites him to request something. Notice again in verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so inheriting the nations, what does that tell us? It reflects the fact that these nations that are plotting, they will prove to be ultimately vain plots because these nations are the inheritance of the Son of God who already sits enthroned. And so when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost... And the nations that were gathered heard that gospel from Peter. Thousands, 3,000 were converted. And that was just the beginning of the extension of the kingdom of Christ that will extend to the ends of the earth. What appropriate night to, to commission our missionaries. Now, here's how Peter essentially explained it in, at Pentecost. Uh, when he's talking about the outpouring of, of the Holy Spirit, he says it's almost like the, the father promised the son that if he would ask him, he would give him the nations for his inheritance. And so Jesus, having ascended to the throne, been raised from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the father, it's as if he said to the father, Father, you promised the nations to me. But in order for the nations to come to me, we have to pour out the Spirit. Like we saw this morning. Because the flesh profits nothing, and the flesh only begets flesh. We must pour out the Spirit in order for them to come to me. And the day of Pentecost was the opening day of Jesus sending his Spirit among all the nations to bring them to faith in this son so that he might have the inheritance promised by his father. There's a whole lot in that passage. But those who continue to resist, those who continue to plot, whether it be nation states or individuals within these nation states, verse 9 is their destiny. Look with me in verse 9. Again, the Messiah is speaking. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, verses 8 and 9, again, should impact our understanding of the Great Commission. Uh, Why? Because um, even though verse 6 is clear that God has set his king on his holy hill... This is speaking about something in the future when God's wrath is poured out on the unrepentant. So this becomes our calling as the church. Uh, It's 
for those of us who are recipients of grace, who are recipients of the saving reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, now our responsibility is to make his name known to those very nations that are plotting in vain so that they can avoid the judgment that is coming. And that brings us to the final speaker of this psalm, the poet preacher himself, David, verses 10 to 12. So we've heard the enemy speak, we've heard the Lord speak, we've heard the anointed one speak, and now we hear David speak. Now therefore, O kings, he is summoning the kings of the earth. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son. Kiss him. What does that mean? It just means to embrace him with affectionate awestruck faith lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all those who take refuge in him and so here he is addressing the kings of verse one who are plotting in vain and he is giving them the only wise course this is the only wise course for all individuals in history And what is that wise course? Serve the Lord. Fear him. Rejoice in him. Kiss the son. There is no refuge from him in the day of judgment. Only in him. That's what the psalmist is saying. Let me repeat that. In that day when his his, uh, wrath is kindled, there will be no refuge from him only in him that's what the psalmist is saying so where do you hide from the wrath of the lamb you hide in the lamb that's what David is saying where the fire of God's wrath has already been poured out and this is the only hope for the nations and as we go into prayer time Keep that in mind. This is the only hope for the nations. It's the only hope for you. And we have that hope because of the saving mercy of this anointed king who sits enthroned. And the evidence that he sits enthroned today is in this room, the assembled body of Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.